You're listening to Drones in America on Market Scale. Your host, Grant Guillot, leads the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Practice Team for the law firm of Adams & Reese. Every week, he will be chatting with leaders, influencers, and experts who are impacting the rapidly growing commercial drone industry in the United States to help us through the complex web of technology and policy. Welcome back to Drones in America by MarketScale. I'm your host, Grant Giat, and I lead the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Practice Team at the law firm of Adams & Reese. This week, I'm joined by two drone service providers who will discuss development in unmanned aircraft system traffic management, also known as UTM. My guests this week are Amit Ganshu, founder and CEO at ANRA Technologies, and Ken Stewart, CEO of Aeros, part of GE Aviation. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. I want to start by asking each of you to tell our listeners about your respective companies. Amit, let's start with you. Uh, hey, thanks, Grant. First of all, it's great to be here with you and I hope you and your family is staying safe during this COVID times. And same likewise for you, Ken. Uh, in terms of our company, we have been in the U.S. traffic management space since the space started in 2015. So we were one of the first companies to have a Space Act agreement with NASA. And we are probably the only, actually, I think we are the only company out there that has participated in all the national campaigns run by NASA, starting with TCL 1, 2, 3, 4, and FAA UTM pilot projects, IPPs. So we are headquartered in U.S. and we have offices in Europe and Asia, and very excited to work with the likes of Ken and his team at Eros and other partners in furthering the industry when it comes to traffic management for unmanned vehicles, whether it's UTM or urban air mobility. Thanks, Amit. And how long have you been involved in this industry? We've been in this industry since 2015, but I've been involved in drones prior to that. I used to work with the U.S. Department of Defense on communications and drone programs, and that's how we had some ideas and filed some patents. And in early 2015, we built a prototype, took it to an event in D.C. and got a coolest technology award. That's when we decided there was something there. So I left DOD and we started this company. Great. Ken, what about Eros? Sure. So, you know, Eros got its start back in 2017, uh, just shortly after Honor Technologies. And it was really that uh, the larger GE was looking into, you know, how they could leverage the adoption of UAVs for various business units, inspections of oil and gas, uh, energy, transmission and distribution, and then obviously the integration with avionics uh, on the aviation side. Now, I know, Ken, obviously you and I have worked together, so I know you have a background also in telecommunications. How does that tie into what you're doing with drones? Sure. So, you know, it's quite analogous as you look at the unmanned traffic management systems and how they'll start developing as to how um, different cellular type of networks evolved over time. I think we'll just see that evolve much more rapidly um, at this time than we did in the in the world of cellular. Amit, if I am someone who is unfamiliar with drones and drone infrastructure, how would you define UTM to me? What is it exactly for those of our listeners who are not really involved in the industry or who are just joining the industry and don't know too much about UTM? Uh, that's a great question, Grant. Sometimes we take these things for granted because we live and breathe in this space. So 
the simplest way, the way I like to explain it to my kids actually is uh, when we get and go to the DC or like Dulles airport and get in the flight to go across coast to San Francisco, we don't have to worry about that plane bumping into things or going flying into area that shouldn't or uh, stuff like that. It's because we have something called air traffic management and these towers and folks that are managing and ensuring the separation and safety of these traffic, uh, this these aircraft. But when, give or take, there are around 10,000 aircraft in the sky at any given time. But when you come to the drone segment, there, go, there are going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions, eventually in the sky. And the same paradigm with the human in the loop doesn't scale, doesn't work. So you need a more automated software-driven system which can handle these small or medium or large aircraft and they'll coexist with other manned aircraft and maintain the separation and maintain the safety and security of our national airspace. So in simplistic terms, it's air traffic control for drones. Thanks, Amit. Now, Ken, one of the things that we've heard the FAA categorize or describe UTM as as complementary to the FAA's air traffic management system. Explain what that means. Sure. Um, you know, you've got air traffic management today that, you know, kind of building on what Amit said. It's very um, analog today. It's all done by voice, you know, communicating from towers to airplanes. Well, in the drone world, it's all digitized. And so, you know, this is areas that drones occupy that generally aircraft don't. And if you look across the United States, we may have thousands of airports, but the airspace that's occupied by drones is far greater at lower altitude than aircraft is. And so when you start thinking about the drones and how they interact, it's really how do we start getting these drones to operate and integrate into the national airspace such that we can have them interact with manned and unmanned. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Ken, about how so many, by virtue of the fact that we're talking about 400 feet, humans are much more likely to come in contact with drones than they are airplanes, are they not? For sure. So it seems to me that kind of, in layman's terms, what UTM does is it kind of provides a way for these flying machines to talk with each other, to communicate not only with each other, but also with government decision makers and stakeholders to be able to ensure safety and efficiency. In regards to what UTM is doing for enabling being able to fly beyond the visual line of sight, Amit, how important is it that we get to a point where we are flying using drones to fly beyond the pilot's visual line of sight? So uh, if you look at it, the real use cases, there are a lot of feel-good use cases with drones and like a lot of use cases that make good marketing press. But if you look in the long term from a scalable point of view, most of the critical or uh, use cases that make drones really valuable are beyond visual line of sight, such as package delivery, uh, such as uh, doing linear inspection, power line, oil and pipe gas line, linear infrastructure inspections. There's still value in doing like uh, taking a rooftop, uh, doing a rooftop inspection and stuff like that. The traffic management doesn't really, it's needed there, but you're going to be in such a small area, it doesn't matter. But when you're going across town, across the country, uh, not across the country, across town or maybe 10, 20 miles out, you can't see the drone. That's where you need the, these separation services, these UTM services become even more important uh, so that you can 
maintain the separation you can there are other aspects like detect and avoid that come into play but tra- traffic management hand lets you do something called strategic deconfliction that means even before you got up in the air you were already deconflicted with other traffic in the area as well as any obstacle terrain etc thanks amit so ken if we're not really using air traffic management to coordinate multiple flights of drones at one time in advanced operations, how do the FAA drone operators and other stakeholders communicate and coordinate efforts, given that there is no communication with air traffic control? So, you know, I think we have to build these systems and kind of the concept of operations around what policies and regulations are in place today. And I'll give you an example. Um, We've done quite a bit of work in beyond visual on a site flights where we're enabling some of our partners to be able to fly up to 10 miles, 10 miles at a time beyond visual line of sight. And to kind of what Amit said is the scale that it provides is far greater than a single pilot with a small drone that flies for you know 15 minutes. When they're flying 10 miles, they can do a lot more work than they can in a 30 minute flight. But the thing that we do to be able to enable that is take radar systems, and integrate them into our UTM system, all for that real-time deconfliction that we generally refer to as tactical deconfliction. And we do that based on the rules and regulations that the FAA has today. Now, for the most part, these operations happen in Class G airspace. So these radar systems are actually there so that we can see manned aircraft who don't have to carry ADS, ADS-B or other sorts of beaconing capabilities into these environments. So we're actually integrating some of this today, albeit on a very limited scale. Um, tell me a little bit about NASA's involvement in UTM matters, because, you know, I know there are a lot of different agencies that interplay and interact in order to facilitate the integration of drones into the national airspace but in terms of the utm what exactly is nasa's role so if you look back uh, at 2015 the whole concept of utm was born at nasa in 2015 starting with the paper publication and that's when the whole utm thing kicked off the one clear distinction you have to make nasa is a research entity it focuses on research and then it someone takes that research and focuses on operationalization. So if you look in US, NASA focuses on research and then FAA will look at the operationalization of the research. So going back 2015, that's when the first UTM uh, national campaign started, uh, starting with with increasing level of complexity, first doing segregated operation, just a couple of drones in the sky. Hey, can we even track and manage these drones? Then increasing level of complexity complexity from rural to suburban to urban areas to multiple stratified or segregated operations uh, and uh, how do you ensure the separation what are the DAA capabilities you need to have uh, how do you inject dynamic constraints or restrictions in the space so that's what NASA has been focused on from a UTM point of view like from TCL 1 to 3 CL4 and then in and then that work that project wrapped up in 2019 and along the way it started the transition into towards FA as part of the what's called the RTT the research transition team to take that research and see how that can be operationalized and now that the 
the UTM world focused on small UAS is kind of wrapping up. The next phase is kicking up at NASA, which is catering to what's called the urban air mobility or your Jetsons becoming a reality, whether it's cargo or humans. So it's called the AAM national campaign now. So that's just kicked off. So that's the next big focus because that's, and that will eventually start transitioning into FAA down the line. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thanks, Amin. I'm glad you brought up the Jetsons because this actually kind of strikes a personal note with me. Um, my wife was insisting on buying one of these. I don't even know the correct name for it, but it's it's called a robot. It, it's a little machine that goes around the house and it like maps out your house and cleans and it can even mop. And she wanted to name it. Um, is it Rosa, Rosie, whatever the name is. Roomba. Of- it's Roomba. Roomba. <laughs> So we had a, the kids and I and my wife had a very long debate over what to name this robot. And we ultimately went with Eliza for, for other reasons I won't go into. But the reason I'm bringing this up is I remember watching the Jetsons in what, the 1980s, 1990s, and uh, thinking, oh, we're looking at 100 years from now. You know, people aren't going to have robots that go around and clean the house. People aren't going to have little machines in the sky that can do things that you know, normally humans are required to. Certainly machines aren't going to be able to um, fly people around like a taxi in the sky, but we're, we're very much, you know, approaching that. And I just find it so interesting that a show that came out so long ago kind of was very prophetic in, in showing what exactly our world could look like. And, and so I appreciate the Jetsons reference. And, and while we're on the um, topic of futuristic uses and how robots are playing a role in taking place of everyday human activities. I want to talk about the UTM pilot program, uh, also known as UPP. Um, Congratulations, first of all, to both Android Technologies and Eros for being selected not only for phase one, but for phase two of the UPP. So congratulations to both of you for that. Let's first start by talking a little bit about phase one. What did it entail and what was accomplished? Ken, let's start with you. Sure. So this was really um, using the FAA's what they call FIMS, Flight Information Management System, to peer together service providers like Eros and Onra Technologies. And in doing that interconnection, you know, we did uh, the ability to authenticate each other, to identify each other, and then exchange information with each other. And that information would be different flight activity or things like strategic deconfliction that Amit talked about earlier, where we can plan our flights around others who are also utilizing that space, but also something called UAS volume restrictions or UVRs, which is kind of the equivalent of a TFR, which is a flight restriction for manned aircraft, but this is now being developed for the unmanned uh, space. So those are the things that we focused on primarily in phase one of the UPP. Great. Now, Amit, why don't you tell me about phase two? So phase two just kind of builds on top of phase one, but it adds the additional, like like Ken mentioned, the phase one was focused on a UTM system to UTM communication and UTM system to the FIMS communication and the UVRs. Phase two takes those and adds an additional layer of complexity around electronic identification or what in US we call remote identification and how do you ID a drone, basically a license plate for drones, right? 
a digital license plate and using both network and broadcast based remote identification technologies so if you're in a connected world you can use network and id so if you step out into your backyard and you see a drone flying out there how do you know it's uh, it's a legitimate authorized operation and not a peeping tom so uh, an authorized user could pull up an app on the phone and enter your address or an area and it will pull up if it's authorized or not a law enforcement would obviously get identifiable information and anonymous user may not that's that's more of a policy regulatory decision but the technical capability is what's being demonstrated and if you're in a disconnected place where you have no cellular or wi-fi coverage then it, you use a broadcast based capability where uh, you can pull up a phone on your device and it's looking for those beacons or broadcasts coming from the drone which contain the id of the drone and then you can call someone back and say hey can you look up this ID and tell me who this is, just like a license plate lookup. Sure. And Grant, one other one other point to add here is, you know, Amit talked earlier about how NASA does the research and development, which then translates over to the FAA for them to basically look at adopting that. And so phase two of the UPP also starts taking into account the ASTM standards uh, that are being developed to start moving away from the NASA APIs that were used in the earlier phases. Yeah, actually, that's a great great point, uh, Ken. So, uh, what we are working at as a industry group, uh, ASTM is a standards body. It's defining standards that are open and globally harmonized. So tomorrow, it's not just going to be U.S. It's going to be multiple nations that are going to have traffic management systems and drone operations, and eventually, you have to interoperate. So just like when you use your cell phone and Ken will love this analogy because we both come from the telecom background. You, earlier on, you used to take a phone and go fly to Japan and your phone won't work there uh, because there were so many different technologies and eventually everything had to get forklifted to what we call now LTE or LTE Advanced or 5G. Same thing in the drone space. Eventually, all these drones have to cross borders, work across systems. So how do you define that interoperable harmonized system? That's what ASTM is doing. I chair the uh, co-chair the working group that's working on the standard. The remote ID standards have already been published. And I know Eros is part of the group that's working on the standards with us as well. So that's those are the standards we are uh, hoping to exercise as part of this pilot project. So taking what was done with NASA, taking it one step further, exercising the standards, and hopefully those get adopted by FA as we operationalize things. Great. Thank you both for telling us a little bit about phase two. One of the things I kind of wanted to pivot and discuss is there's been so much emphasis on the regulatory environment, and certainly no one can deny how important it is to pave a positive regulatory environment for commercial drone use. But and this is something that I've discussed on the program several times, how public perception and acceptance of drones is just as important. And, you know, I want to give a shout out to a group that all three of us are a part of, the Commercial Drone Alliance run by Lisa Element. Uh, they do a great job in trying to facilitate both regulatory support and public um, appreciation and acceptance of drones. I'm curious to hear what both of you think about, and I'm going a little off script here, but I'm curious to hear what both of you think about how drones are portrayed in the media. Um, I've discussed a couple examples on this program about how drones are lurking in the shadows, and at the end of these superhero movies, they come out and just blow everything to hell and back. 
Um, what can we do as an industry to present a united front to combat that negative perception? So a couple things. I think, you know, <clears throat> some of these programs that the FAA has been running, so we go back to the UAS IPPs, um, you know, one of the critical components of all of this is, while a lot of this is driven by the FAA or NASA, the public-private partnerships that companies like Eros and ONRA and others bring to this really help with the community engagement. So one of the outcomes of all of these IPPs or UPPs is how do we engage with the community for a positive sense of how drones can be used? And so our goal or an outcome of all of these programs is this community engagement to show the benefits of drones. It's not always about, as you said, uh, waiting in the shadows, um, you know, but there are still some communities that we see a lot of pushback. I think uh, there was something in the paper this week from Baltimore um, where there was some pushback, where there were some concerns. And we've seen that sporadically throughout various areas in the U.S. But I think the work that we're all doing, some of the work you're seeing relate, related to COVID is starting to put it in a different light, especially when you think about it from search and rescue and other sort of societal benefits that we can gain from the use of drones. No, I think Ken, Ken did an excellent job capturing it. Only I think I would just highlight, uh, I, 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 I'm going to use an analogy, uh, and, and this is just my personal opinion. Like uh, one of the biggest concerns people have about the, the public perception is these are eyes in the sky. Someone is surveilling, someone is looking over what I'm doing. But if you honestly take a step back and think about it, that's already happening. It's just happening via satellites that are high up in the sky and you don't see them. So many satellites can take much higher resolution imagery than drones can. It's just that we don't see them, so we act differently. I'm not sure, saying there shouldn't be concerns. There should be. But we have to find the right balance, find the middle ground. And uh, anything that's... Uh, adds the humanitarian aspect to it. Like with COVID was a great example, delivering medical supplies to remote areas, life-saving drugs or uh, packages to elderly people in case of quarantines and stuff like that. Those are real legitimate use cases. And the way the world is evolving, those things might become a norm down the line. Sure. Sure. I think, you know, one of the interesting cases with this COVID piece is you guys may have seen the cruise ship that was off the coast of California and they had a Black Hawk helicopter running some COVID tests out to that to that ship. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, that that's probably costing thousands of dollars an hour to get all that equipment out to the ship. And I thought to myself, well, how much more cost effective and quite frankly, safer would it be to use a drone? You could contain those tests cases, you know, the, the samples that go out with and are returned back from the drone better. You're not jeopardizing the lives of the crew of a helicopter. It just seemed like that would have been a great opportunity that we could have used to illustrate um, how a drone, and it's not just the, the humanitarian aspect, but the economics. You know, yep. the drone flying that would have been far less costly than a, uh, than a helicopter. You know, it's really unfortunate as I actually came across a story uh of a poll or survey taken recently where 80% of Americans don't trust drones right now. And it's really sad because now is a time where drones could really shine or should really shine. By nature, they, by definition, they're unmanned, they're social distancers. And so 
Hopefully, if we continue to work together as an industry, we'll eventually overcome that perception. Uh, you know, Lord knows that helicopters, airplanes, and even cars all faced similar concerns when they first came out. So um, hopefully we will get past this this public distrust at some point and really open up the industry so that people will see all the great things drones can do. Uh, gentlemen, I want to thank you both for joining the program. Um, why don't we close with each of you telling me a little bit about what's coming up for your company. Uh, Amit, what's coming up with Anor Technologies? Uh, we are going to have some uh, nice announcements coming out here over the new uh, few next few months. We are waiting for this COVID thing to blow over, but uh, I can't speak much to it. But yeah, there are some new uh, feature releases and platform releases coming, and specifically focused around urban air mobility as well. Great, Ken. What about Aeros? Yeah, so um, likewise, I think we were all kind of waiting for, you know, AVSI to come up exponential this year to do some announcements. And since that's been all curtailed through the COVID-19 issues, um, I think we're all just kind of holding back on some of that. But, you know, I think you're going to see a big um, push in public safety, um, as well as some extensions into, you know, widespread critical infrastructure you know, some very big uh, opportunities coming out there in the very near future. I also would suggest that I think one of the things that will be an outcome of the COVID issue, and, and Amit just kind of touched on this about the social distancing, is I think you're going to see a ramp up in robotics and automation, drones uh, going forward, because that's only going to support, you know, some of this social distancing going forward. So I think I think the industry, while you know we're all hunkered down now, I think this industry is getting ready to really take off post-COVID, whatever that post-COVID looks like. I think you're right, Ken. I think all of us are going to have a, a Rosa or a Rosie. Which is it? Rosie. Roomba. Rosie. <laughs> it, it is Rosie. Rosie the robot. Yeah, from Jetson. Rosie yeah. the robot. I think we all. I, I know it's been a game changer for my wife. So. I'm not trying to necessarily, I have no ties to that company, but I will say that it, it's it's a great investment if, you know, if you want to get your floors cleaned and mopped uh, by robot, it, it definitely is working wonders for us. So um, here's to more of a Jetsonian future. Um, you two are always a blast to speak with, and um, I hope I get to hang out with both of you um, in August uh, when the conventions are finally, um, as of now, able to go forward. Um who knows for sure when all that will happen, but hopefully we will be able to interact in person in the not-too-distant future. Um, congratulations again to both Anor Technologies and Eros on being selected in Phase 2 of the UPP and for all your other successes. It's always great to have you guys on the program, and I look forward to having you on in the future. Thank you. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy. You guys too. Thank you. <laughs>